Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Orléans, France. The 549th anniversary of the liberation of the city from the English in 1429. The war, the Hundred Years' War between the French and the English. The Liberator... Joan of Arc, known as Joan the Maid, or in French, Yehan la Pucelle. Joan of Arc's day has now become a national festival, and the chief celebrants are the high-ranking officers of the French army, the dignitaries of the French government, and the bishops and cardinals of the French Catholic Church. church, the government and the army once betrayed and burnt Joan of Arc as a heretic. She is now honoured by them as the symbol of French patriotism. In 1920, this annual celebration had a special significance. In that year, Joan the Maid, the heroine of France, was made a saint of the Catholic Church. Why was she made a saint 489 years after her death as a heretic? What is it about her that has made her the stuff of legend and literature ever since she died? What was she really like? First, let me tell you whom you have condemned. Not me, begotten of a shepherd swain, but issued from the progeny of kings. Virtuous and holy, chosen from above by inspiration of celestial grace to work exceeding miracles on earth. I never had to do with wicked spirits, but you that are polluted with your lusts, stained with the guiltless blood of innocence, corrupt and tainted with a thousand vices because you want the grace that others have you judge it straight a thing impossible to compass wonders but by help of devils William Shakespeare in Henry the sixth part one created his Joan for an English audience by 1920 12,000 writers had reinterpreted Joan's life for their own age she has probably inspired more propaganda than any other figure in European history. The evidence for Joan's life story comes from the chroniclers of the Hundred Years' War, who were writing 30 or 40 years after the events they describe. In the illuminated manuscripts of the Armagnac French, the side Joan was on, 
she appears playing a heroic role in the events of the Civil War. The chroniclers of the Burgundian party, who supported the English claim to the French throne, take a rather more jaundiced view of her. If we had only the chronicles to go on, we would have little idea about Joan as a person. But luckily, we have the records of her trial for heresy, in which the clerks of the court wrote down the questions and answers of her interrogation. We also have copies of the trial which took place 20 years after her death. The trial documents, along with other contemporary records, one of which has in its margin the earliest imaginary picture of Joan, enable historians to build up a detailed account of Joan's personality and her role in the Hundred Years' War. In 1428, when Joan of Arc first appears in public life, the English controlled the whole of northern France, Bordeaux, and the Duchy of Aquitaine. Their allies, the Burgundians, led by Philip the Good, held territories in eastern France. The Armagnac French held southern France and supported the claim of the French candidate to the throne, the Dauphin of France, the future Charles VII. Joan's story begins in a little village in eastern France, loyal to the Dauphin, but surrounded by enemy territory. Joan was born in Domremy in 1412 or 1413. In this small community, Joan's father, Jacques d'Arc, was an important man, one of the leading men in the village. At the trial which took place 20 years after her death, Joan's friends and neighbours were asked to testify to her character. My name is Simonin Musnier. I was brought up with Joan the maid, next door to her father's house. I know she was good, simple, pious, fearing God and his saints. She went often and of her own will to church and to sacred places, caring for the sick and giving alms to the poor. This I saw for myself, for when I was a child, I myself was sick, and Joan came to comfort me. My name is Jean Moreau, and in her youth, and until the time when she left her father's house, she went to the fields to plough, and sometimes guarded the animals in the fields, and did women's work spinning and the rest. At her own trial, Joan was also asked about her childhood. When I was 13 years old, I had a voice from God to help me govern my conduct. And the first time I was very fearful. And came this voice about the hour of noon in the summertime in my father's garden. I heard the voice on the right-hand side towards the church. And rarely do I hear it without a brightness. The brightness comes from the same side as the voice is heard. The voice is sent to me by God, and it has always guarded me well, and I have always understood it clearly. The voices that Joan heard make her one of the most supernatural characters in French history. In the 19th century, when interest in her reached a peak, this aspect of her life fascinated the artists and sculptors of the time. The voice told me that I should go to France, and I could not bear to stay where I was. The voice told me I should raise the siege laid to the city of Orléans. The voice told me also that I should make my way to Robert de Baudricourt, 
in the fortress of Vaucouleur, the captain of the place, that he would give me people to go with me. And me, I answered it, that I was a poor girl who knew not how to ride or lead in war. Vaucouleur was one of the Dauphin's three outlying strongholds deep in enemy territory. Joan went to see Robert de Baudricourt in his castle, determined to convince him that she had to see the Dauphin. At first he was sceptical, but she was so persistent that after several months he gave her an escort of six men. Tradition has it that she rode out through this gate in February 1429. She was just 17 years old. Leaving the town of Vaucouleur for fear of the English and the Burgundians who were everywhere across our road to the king, we sometimes moved at night and we kept on the road for a period of 11 days, riding towards the town of Chinon. The meeting with the Dauphin is supposed to be the first miracle of Joan's divine mission. Here in the great hall, hiding among his courtiers, she recognized him. Gentle Dauphin, Joan the Maid is my name. And to you is sent word by me from the King of Heaven that you will be anointed and crowned in the town of Reims and you will be lieutenant to the King of Heaven who is the King of France. But was it really a miracle that Joan recognized the Dauphin at court? One can't explain away her voices and her visions. These are her personal affair. One could argue, I suppose, that in a period which believed in visions and voices, people were more likely to have them in a period when people perhaps don't. But um, I think the use which is made of Joan can be explained. She could be seen as the instrument of a partic particular political faction at court, like the House of Anjou, um, a faction which wants to uh, reconcile Burgundy with the House of Valois. Um, it's from this angle, I think, that the historian has got to proceed. It's the only way in which one can ever get anywhere near explaining her. After several months of questioning and delay, the Dauphin gave Joan armor, a banner, and permission to march to Orléans on the Revoloire with the army in order to relieve the English siege. On April the 29th, 1429, Joan entered the city by a gap in the overstretched English lines. By her presence, she galvanized the defending forces into making a series of successful attacks, vividly depicted in the Armagnac Chronicles. The English forts fell, and the English withdrew on May the 8th. Orléans was liberated. Within weeks, the victory inspired the first piece of literature about Joan, a poem of praise written by another woman, the poetess Christine de Pizan. Oh, how blessed is the female sex! How favoured of God, that one of us should appear when this mighty nation was humbled and do what no man could achieve. The people rescued safe and sound by a woman and the traitors put to flight before they scarcely had time to know what had happened to them. That a mere slip of a girl, quite extraordinary, isn't it? whom weapons in no way weighed down but seemed rather her natural habit should prove so valiant and strong that the enemy fled before her and not one dared to resist all this she did and many bore witness to it Joan exalted by the victory that her voices had promised 
was anxious to achieve her next objective, the anointing of the Dauphin at Reims Cathedral. If she could get Charles crowned and consecrated at Reims, this would mean that people like the Duke of Burgundy, whose support was so vital to Charles's cause, could be brought over, she thought, uh, into his service, that by being anointed, this would give um, a tremendous authority to the Valois as opposed to the Lancastrian claim to the throne of France, and Joan would be able, by this means, to reduce the Duke of Burgundy to allegiance. The journey north to Reims is now a route for tourist coaches following in Joan's footsteps. But the Dauphin had to make the 160-mile journey through enemy territory to reach Reims, the traditional city for the anointing of the French kings. So what happened was that they all went into the cathedral, they sang their Te Deum, and they waited for the ampulla to arrive. The English writer and critic Edward Lucy Smith wrote a detailed biography of Joan in 1976. And we've got, got to go through the side one, but the bishop rode up on his mule and he had the right to ride mounted into the nave of the church. Even though it was a consecrated building, he came right into the nave. And this is in part an emblem of the fact that naves are less holy than choirs. And what she was to imagine uh, coming to the cathedral uh, is that this girl who had had this vision and was now about to accomplish it, she would have found here many emblems. She would have found many emblems uh, which would seem to echo her preoccupations. All these angels which are around the cathedral and in the arches, those were the angels of her visions and those were the angels which were afterwards to appear to her in Saint-Pierre-le-Moutier. in the coronation was this, uh, that the abbot of Saint-Rémy rode up the nave on his mule. And you must imagine this is absolutely packed with people standing and with people sitting up there in the triforia with their legs dangling down. I think there probably wasn't an inch that everybody in the town had piled into the church for the great event. The coronation of Charles VII was the peak of Joan's achievement. This moment of her greatest glory was another favorite subject for 19th century painters. First of all, the king had to take an oath to govern his people well, that oath which was always taken and, of course, always to some extent broken by every king. Secondly, um, there came the ceremony of his knighting. Then, then you had the anointing and the king who was wearing one set of robes stripped them off, you know, just like layers like my pullover, and there were slits, as there are in the English coronation garment, uh, for anointing uh, the, the correct places. And he wore, which is quite interesting because it's part of the Joan story, he wore gloves with slits in them. And he was anointed through them. And Joan, there was afterwards a rumor that Joan had stolen the gloves, which of course would have traces of the oil on them for purposes of witchcraft. And this was one of the sillier stories put about them and she gave a very short answer to her, her critics. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, all this was going on,
Joan was standing by one of the pillars, and she was holding her banner, which was the only banner in the church. And afterwards, at her trial, there was a great fuss about this banner. And she made, I think, the best of all her replies. She said when she was asked why her banner had been the only banner in the Cathedral of Reims at the time of the coronation, and none of the other captains had brought their banners in, she said, it had had the trouble, and it was right that it should have the honor. I think that one would have to acknowledge that um, the great psychological boost which she gives to the Valois monarchy by having Charles VII crowned at Reims um, could hardly be overrated. The Hundred Years' War could never be the same, and the political history of France could never be the same after that event. But the sequence which followed the coronation was not, of course, what Joan predicted. What Joan wanted was an all-out military campaign against the Burgundians and the English to win back lost territories. Charles VII and his courtiers preferred the more subtle methods of diplomatic agreement with the Duke of Burgundy and resented Joan's outspoken opinions and her unconventional methods of warfare. She was, however, allowed to go off and fight a few campaigns on her own with the captains who still supported her. In May 1430, in spite of opposition from the French court, she attempted the relief of Compiègne, which had been besieged by the Burgundians. This is the Burgundian side of the river. Uh, all this was boggy ground, and she was forced into the boggy ground. She was riding what's called a demi-coursier, which is a demi-charger. She was always very good on horses. She knew exactly what kind of horse she had, and that was because it was a light horse for the boggy ground. I don't know whether this is a demi-coursier or not. And they caught up with her in the boggy ground when she was entangled. She was wearing a hook. And a hook, a hook is a garment almost like a priest's dalmatic. It's open down the side so that when you ride, it flies out. It's a pity that they haven't had it here, but all the panels flew out in red and gold. And somebody came up to her when she was stopped in the boggy ground and grabbed her by the cloth. And she pull, was pulled down to the ground. And because she was wearing armor, she had no chance. She couldn't get up again. And Jean de Luxembourg was in charge of the negotiations, and he sold her to the English. After her capture, she was taken by her enemies to Rouen to be put on trial for heresy. The English had a very strong interest, of course, in eliminating Joan, because by doing that, they would prove that Charles VII owed his throne, his coronation, his title to a heretic, someone who had been proved heretical and condemned by a properly constituted court of the Inquisition. Joan's assessors were members of the University of Paris who supported the English claim to the French throne. The trial was masterminded by Pierre Cochon, the Bishop of Beauvais. Swear to speak the truth with your hand on the holy evangels in all matters on which you will be questioned. I do not know on what you will question me. It may happen that you will ask me a thing which I shall not tell you. Of what form was St. Michael when he appeared to you? I saw no crown on him, and of his clothes I know nothing. Was he naked? <laughs> Do you think that God cannot afford to clothe him? She comes over as a very intelligent girl. The shrewdness and sharpness of her replies shows that. Uh, with a good memory, she's able to recall uh, episodes and moments of the trial, for instance, that happened a few days before and even correct some of the scribes. 
uh, rather impulsive at times, strong-willed, uh, cutting through humbug and uh, going direct to the point. These saints which appear to you, have they hair? Wouldn't you like to know? How do they speak? The voice is beautiful, sweet and low. It speaks in the French language. Does not St. Margaret speak the English tongue? Well, how should she speak English, since she is not on the side of the English? The mere fact that she claims direct communication with God via St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret puts her in the field of the mystics. Now, her mysticism is interesting. At first, these communications are very sensory linked. She sees, she hears, she smells, she touches. Gradually, as time goes on, she becomes less precise about this, so that she didn't divulge a number of things, and they become much more direct. And it's not very clear at times whether, when she speaks about her voices, whether she is referring to a direct experience or to an actual voice. So there's this process moving from the sensory to the more direct communication, which is a feature of a, of a mystical development. Then other interesting features are that none of those voices or revelation are to her own advantage, what they tell her. Does God hate the English? Of the love or hate which God has for the English and of what he does to their souls, I know nothing. But well I know that they will be driven out of France, excepting those who will die there. And God will send victory to the French over the English. The unique thing about St. Joan is that her voices and her visions told her that her mission was a political one. Virtually every other late medieval female saint, like St. Bridget of Sweden or St. Catherine of Siena, um, did not have political visions. Um, they did not hear political voices. Joan does. This, of course, is very convenient for Charles VII and his cause. Do you know if you are in God's grace? If I am not, may God bring me to it. If I am, may God keep me in it. Do you not believe that you owe submission to God's church on earth? That is, to our Lord the Pope, to the cardinals, archbishops, bishops, and other prelates of the church? Yes, our Lord being first served. They tried as many tricks and as many of the stocks in trade of the Inquisition as they could. They tried sorcery, that failed. They tried um, all kinds of making all kinds of suggestions to her about the nature of her voices, that she had um, unnatural or perverse relationships with those who appeared, to, who appeared to her in her visions. Eventually, um, they managed to convict her on the issue of wearing men's clothes, which, of course, was heretical in the 15th century. But Joan refused to admit to any heresy. After four months on trial, she was threatened with torture in the great tower of Rouen Castle. Truly, though you were to have my limbs torn off and send the soul out of my body, I should not say otherwise. And if I did tell you otherwise, I should always thereafter say you had made me speak so by force. Pierre Cochon, the Bishop of Beauvais, under pressure from the English, was getting impatient. On May the 24th, he decided to subject Joan to a public lecture in the cemetery of the church at Saint-Ouen. But what you must imagine is that there was a set of scaffolds put up in this courtyard 
facing them, there was another and bigger scaffold for official purposes. From this scaffold, the preacher accused her of being a magician, a heretic, and a schismatic. She was then persuaded to sign a confession, in which she promised never to carry arms, wear men's clothes, or cut her hair short. She did so thinking that she would now be taken out of English custody and put into a church prison. But Cochon sent her straight back to the English prison she had come from. There, in defiance of this betrayal, Joan retracted her confession and once again put on men's clothes. Now, I think we can let her speak for herself. There is no reason to bring in ideas of her being framed, that the men's clothes were the only clothes available to her, that it was a kind of Anglo-Burgundian ramp which she was the victim of. I think one can believe her when she said that the prospect of be being mentally tortured for the rest of her life in perpetual prison by her voices who turned against her uh, was too much for her to stand. And she decides that the short agony of the stake um, is preferable to the long agony of perpetual imprisonment constantly haunted and accused by her own voices. Joan told Cochon that in signing her confession she had damned herself to save her life. In the margin, the clerk noted that this was the fatal reply, the one that brought her death. On the 30th of May, 1431, Joan was taken to the old marketplace at Rouen by an escort of 800 armed Frenchmen. Today, a chapel is being built over the site of her death. Cochon pronounced the sentence of heresy and handed her over to secular justice and the executioner. She was only 19 years old. When Joan saw the fire kindled, she began to cry out in a loud voice, Jesus, Jesus, and still until her death she cried, Jesus. I heard say that Master Jean Tressard, secretary to the King of England, returning from Joan's execution, affected and groaning, wept lamentably over what he had seen in that place, and said indeed, we are all lost, for we have burnt a good and holy person. But was she really burnt? There are many writers today who hold the view that Joan was rescued by her secret friends. Even at the time, some people refused to believe that she had died. I think this was a result of that common medieval um, tendency for rumors to spread about the survival of those who were particularly popular in some areas or whose lives were particularly uh, venerated and, and thought to be sacred. One of the modern strongholds of the theory that Joan of Arc survived the stake is Jolny Castle in eastern France, which used to be the home of the most successful lady who actually said she was Joan after Joan's official death. Her name was Yehan des Armoises. When this castle was bought in the 19th century by the grandfather of the present owner, in the course of redecorating the interior, he discovered what he claims to be a medieval fresco above the fireplace. It shows the portrait of Yehan or Joan, who married the owner of the castle, Robert des Armoises. My theory is that Joan was of royal blood, first, and secondly, that she wasn't burnt at the stake in Rouen in 1431. 
and uh, she escaped. Uh, she was rescued by Pierre Cochon, and later she was recognized by many people. In a family document, Joan, the wife of Robert, is called La Pucelle de France, the Maid of France, a title only really suitable for a member of the royal family. Further evidence to suggest Joan's royal origins, the reason for her rescue, comes from a Burgundian book of royal heraldry, which includes the arms given to Joan by Charles VII. It is the Sermois family tradition that Joan and Robert were buried in the little church of Pouligny in Lorraine. In 1968, Count Pierre de Samoise decided to reinvestigate the allegations which a village priest had made to his uncle, that the tomb had been removed and defaced when proceedings for Joan's canonization were started, so that the official story of her death could not be challenged. A mason found the tomb under the steps to the choir. The name was scratched out. Only an inscription was left. Pray for her soul. Um, I can't see why um, her accusers should not have burnt her. One would have to assume that no less than 115 people perjured themselves at the trial of rehabilitation by saying that she had been burnt. I find this scarcely credible. For the French, there was no real evidence about the fate of Joan until Charles VII rode into Rouen in 1449, 17 years after she had been burnt there. In February 1450, he sent a letter to one of his counsellors about Joan. We would know the truth of the said trial proceedings and the manner according to which it was carried on and proceeded with. Three commissioners were appointed, but in a reunited France, Charles was not anxious to reveal the political past of those participants in the trial who had now joined his camp. Joan's mother pleaded for the judgment on her daughter to be reversed, but of course, the Pope was being asked to revoke a judgment of heresy. After seven long years, the three commissioners finally declared the previous trial null and void. From that year onwards, the popular celebrations which had taken place at Orléans every year in honor of Joan now took place with the official blessing of the Catholic Church. And so Joan began her long career as an officially approved popular heroine. You don't need... It's in part an emblem of the fact that knaves are less holy than choirs. And what she was to imagine uh, coming to the cathedral uh, is that this girl who had had this vision and was now about to accomplish it, she would have found here many emblems. She would have found many emblems uh, which would seem to echo her preoccupation. All these angels which are around the cathedral and in the arches, those were the angels of her visions, and those were the angels which were afterwards to appear to her in Saint-Pierre-le-Moutier. in the coronation was this, uh, that the abbot of Saint Remy rode up the nave on his mule. And you must imagine this is absolutely packed with people standing and with people sitting up there in the triforia with their legs dangling down. I think there probably wasn't an inch that everybody in the town had piled into the church for the great event. The coronation of Charles VII 
was the peak of Joan's achievement. This moment of her greatest glory was another favorite subject for 19th century painters. First of all, the king had to take an oath to govern his people well. That oath which was always taken and of course always to some extent broken by every king. Secondly, um, there came the ceremony of his knighting. Then, then you had the anointing and the king who was wearing one set of robes stripped them off, you know, just like layers like my pullover and there were slits as there are in the English coronation garment uh, for anointing uh, the, the correct places and he wore, which is quite interesting because it's part of the Joan story, he wore gloves with slits in them and he was anointed through them and Joan, there was afterwards a rumour that Joan had stolen the gloves which of course would have traces of the oil on them for purposes of witchcraft. And this was one of the sillier stories put about, and she gave a very short answer to her, her critics. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, all this was going on, Joan was standing by one of the pillars, and she was holding her banner, which was the only banner in the church. And afterwards, at her trial, there was a great fuss about this banner. And she made, I think, the best of all her replies. She said when she was asked why her banner had been the only banner in the Cathedral of Reims at the time of the coronation and none of the other captains had brought their banners in, she said it had had the trouble. My name is Jeanne Moreau, and in her youth and until the time when she left her father's house, she went to the fields to plough and sometimes guarded the animals in the fields and did women's work, spinning and the rest. At her own trial, Joan was also asked about her childhood. When I was 13 years old, I had a voice from God to help me govern my conduct. And the first time I was very fearful. And came this voice about the hour of noon in the summertime in my father's garden. I heard the voice on the right-hand side towards the church. And rarely do I hear it without a brightness. The brightness comes from the same side as the voice is heard. The voice is sent to me by God, and it has always guarded me well, and I have always understood it clearly. The voices that Joan heard make her one of the most supernatural characters in French history. In the 19th century, when interest in her reached a peak, this aspect of her life fascinated the artists and sculptors of the time. The voice told me that I should go to France and I could not bear to stay where I was. The voice told me I should raise the siege laid to the city of Orléans. The voice told me also that I should make my way to Robert de Baudricourt in the fortress of Vaucouleurs, the captain of the place, that he would give me people to go with me. And me, I answered it, that I was a poor girl who knew not how to ride or lead in war. Vaucouleurs was one of the Dauphin's three outlying strongholds deep in enemy territory. Joan went to see Robert de Baudricourt in his castle, determined to convince him that she had to see the Dauphin. At first he was sceptical, but she was so persistent that after several months he gave her an escort of six men. Tradition has it that she rode out through this gate in February 1429. She was just 17 years old. Leaving the town of Vaucouleurs, for fear of the English and the Burgundians who were everywhere across our road to the king, we sometimes moved at night. And we kept on the road for a period of eleven days, riding towards the town of Chinon. 
The meeting with the Dauphin is supposed to be the first miracle of Joan's divine mission. Here in the great hall, hiding among his courtiers, she recognized him. Gentle Dauphin, Joan the Maid is my name, and to you is sent word by me from the King of Heaven that you will be anointed and crowned in the town of Reims, and you will be lieutenant to the King of Heaven. On trial, Joan was also asked about her childhood. When I was 13 years old, I had a voice from God to help me govern my conduct. And the first time I was very fearful. And came this voice about the hour of noon in the summertime in my father's garden. I heard the voice on the right-hand side towards the church. And rarely do I hear it without a brightness. The brightness comes from the same side as the voice is heard. The voice is sent to me by God and it has always guarded me well, and I have always understood it clearly. The voices that Joan heard make her one of the most supernatural characters in French history. In the 19th century, when interest in her reached a peak, this aspect of her life fascinated the artists and sculptors of the time. The voice told me that I should go to France and I could not bear to stay where I was. The voice told me I should raise the siege laid to the city of Orléans. The voice told me also that I should make my way to Robert de Baudricourt in the fortress of Vaucouleurs, the captain of the place, that he would give me people to go with me. And me, I answered it, that I was a poor girl who knew not how to ride or lead in war. Vaucouleurs was one of the Dauphin's three outlying strongholds deep in enemy territory. Joan went to see Robert de Baudricourt in his castle, determined to convince him that she had to see the Dauphin. At first he was sceptical, but she was so persistent that after several months he gave her an escort of six men. Tradition has it that she rode out through this gate in February 1429. She was just 17 years old. Leaving the town of Vaucouleurs for fear of the English and the Burgundians who were everywhere across our road to the king, we sometimes moved at night. And we kept on the road for a period of 11 days, riding towards the town of Chinon. The meeting with the Dauphin is supposed to be the first miracle of Joan's divine mission. Here in the great hall, Hiding among his courtiers, she recognized him. Gentle Dauphin, Joan the Maid is my name, and to you is sent word by me from the King of Heaven that you will be anointed and crowned in the town of Reims, and you will be lieutenant to the King of Heaven, who is the King of France. But was it really a miracle that Joan recognized the Dauphin at court? One can't explain away her voices and her visions. These are her personal affair. One could argue, I suppose, that in a... The voice told me also that I should make my way to Robert de Baudricourt in the fortress of Vaucouleurs, the captain of the place, that he would give me people to go with me. And me, I answered it, that I was a poor girl who knew not how to ride or lead in war. Vaucouleurs was one of the Dauphin's three outlying strongholds deep in enemy territory. Joan went to see Robert de Baudricourt in his castle, determined to convince him that she had to see the Dauphin. At first he was sceptical,
but she was so persistent that after several months he gave her an escort of six men. Tradition has it that she rode out through this gate in February 1429. She was just 17 years old. Leaving the town of Vaucouleurs for fear of the English and the Burgundians who were everywhere across our road to the king, we sometimes moved at night. And we kept on the road for a period of 11 days, riding towards the town of Chinon. The meeting with the Dauphin is supposed to be the first miracle of Joan's divine mission. Here in the great hall, hiding among his courtiers, she recognized him. Gentle Dauphin, Joan the Maid is my name, and to you is sent word by me from the King of Heaven that you will be anointed and crowned in the town of Reims, and you will be lieutenant to the King of Heaven, who is the King of France. But was it really a miracle that Joan recognized the Dauphin at court? One can't explain away her voices and her visions. These are her personal affair. One could argue, I suppose, that in a period which believed in visions and voices, people were more likely to have them in a period when people perhaps don't. But um, I think the use which is made of Joan can be explained. She could be seen as the instrument of a partic particular political faction at court, like the House of Anjou, um, a faction which wants to uh, reconcile Burgundy with the House of Valois. Um, it's from this angle, I think, that the historian has got to proceed. It's the only way in which one can ever get anywhere near explaining her. After several months of questioning and delay, the Dauphin gave Joan armour, a banner, and permission to march to Orléans on the Revaloire with the army in order to relieve the English siege. On April the 29th, 1429, Joan entered the city by a gap in the overstretched English lines. By her presence, she galvanized the defending forces into making a series of successful attacks, vividly depicted in the Armagnac Chronicles. The English forts fell, and the English withdrew on May the 8th. Orléans was liberated. Within weeks, the victory inspired the first piece of literature about... My name is Simonin Musnier. I was brought up with Joan the Maid, next door to her father's house. I know she was good, simple, pious, fearing God and his saints. She went often and of her own will to church and to sacred places, caring for the sick and giving alms to the poor. This I saw for myself, for when I was a child, I myself was sick, and Joan came to comfort me. My name is Jean Moreau, and in her youth, and until the time when she left her father's house, she went to the fields to plough and sometimes guarded the animals in the fields, and did women's work, spinning and the rest. At her own trial, Joan was also asked about her childhood. When I was 13 years old, I had a voice from God to help me govern my conduct. And the first time I was very fearful. And came this voice about the hour of noon in the summertime, in my father's garden. I heard the voice on the right-hand side towards the church and rarely do I hear it without a brightness. The brightness comes from the same side as the voice is heard. The voice is sent to me by God, and it has always guarded me well, and I have always understood it clearly. 
The voices that Joan heard make her one of the most supernatural characters in French history. In the 19th century, when interest in her reached a peak, this aspect of her life fascinated the artists and sculptors of the time. The voice told me that I should go to France, and I could not bear to stay where I was. The voice told me I should raise the siege late to the city of Orléans. The voice told me also that I should make my way to Robert de Baudricourt in the fortress of Vaucouleurs, the captain of the place, that he would give me people to go with me. And me, I answered it, that I was a poor girl who knew not how to ride or lead in war. Vaucouleurs was one of the Dauphin's three outlying strongholds deep in enemy territory. Joan went to see Robert de Baudricourt in his castle, determined to convince him that she had to see the Dauphin. At first he was sceptical, but she was so persistent that after several months he gave her an escort of six men. Tradition has it that she rode out through this gate in February 1429. She was just 17 years old. Leaving the town of Vaucouleurs for fear of the English and the Burgundians who were everywhere across our road to the king, we sometimes moved at night. And we kept on the road for a period of 11 days, riding towards the town of Chinon. The meeting with the Dauphin is supposed to be the first miracle of Joan's divine mission. Here in the great hall, hiding among his courtiers, she recognized him. Gentle Dauphin, Joan the Maid is my name, and to you is sent word by me from the King of Heaven that you will be anointed and crowned in the town of Reims, and you will be lieutenant to the King of Heaven, who is the King of France. But was it really a miracle that Joan recognized the Dauphin at court? One can't explain away her voices and her visions. These are her personal affair. One could argue, I suppose, that in a period which believed in visions and voices, people were more likely to have them, in a period when people perhaps don't. But um, I think the use which is made of Joan can be explained. She could be seen as the instrument of a partic particular political faction at court, like the House of Anjou, um, a faction which wants to uh, reconcile Burgundy with the House of Valois. Um, it's from this angle, I think, that the historian has got to proceed. It's the only way in which one can ever get anywhere near explaining her. After several months of questioning and delay, the Dauphin gave Joan armour, a banner, and permission to march to Orléans on the Revoloire with the army in order to relieve the English siege. On April the 29th, 1429, Joan entered the city by a gap in the overstretched English lines. By her presence, she galvanized the defending forces into making a series of successful attacks, vividly depicted in the Armagnac Chronicles. The English forts fell, and the English withdrew on May the 8th. Orléans was liberated. Within weeks, the victory inspired the first piece of literature about Joan, a poem of praise written by another woman, the poetess Christine de Pizan. Oh, how blessed is the female sex! How favoured of God, that one of us should appear when this mighty nation was humbled and do what no man could achieve. The people rescued safe and sound by a woman and the traitors put to flight before they scarcely had time to know what had happened to them. That a mere slip of a girl 
quite extraordinary, isn't it? Whom weapons in no way weighed down, but seemed rather her natural habit, should prove so valiant and strong that the enemy fled before her, and not one dared to resist. All this she did, and many bore witness to it. Joan, exalted by the victory that... And I could not bear to stay where I was. The voice told me I should raise the siege late to the city of Orléans. The voice told me also that I should make my way to Robert de Baudricourt in the fortress of Vaucouleurs, the captain of the place, that he would give me people to go with me. And me, I answered it, that I was a poor girl who knew not how to ride or lead in war. Vaucouleurs was one of the Dauphin's three outlying strongholds deep in enemy territory. Joan went to see Robert de Baudricourt in his castle, determined to convince him that she had to see the Dauphin. At first he was sceptical, but she was so persistent that after several months he gave her an escort of six men. Tradition has it that she rode out through this gate in February 1429. She was just 17 years old. Leaving the town of Vaucouleurs for fear of the English and the Burgundians who were everywhere across our road to the king, we sometimes moved at night. And we kept on the road for a period of 11 days, riding towards the town of Chinon. The meeting with the Dauphin is supposed to be the first miracle of Joan's divine mission. Here in the great hall, Hiding among his courtiers, she recognized him. Gentle Dauphin, Joan the Maid is my name, and to you is sent word by me from the King of Heaven that you will be anointed and crowned in the town of Reims, and you will be lieutenant to the King of Heaven, who is the King of France. But was it really a miracle that Joan recognized the Dauphin at court? One can't explain away her voices and her visions. These are her personal affair. One could argue, I suppose, that in a period which believed in visions and voices, people were more likely to have them, in a period when people perhaps don't. But um, I think the use which is made of Joan can be explained. She could be seen as the instrument of a particular political faction at court, like the House of Anjou, um, a faction which wants to uh, reconcile Burgundy with the House of Valois. Um, it's from this angle, I think, that the historian has got to proceed. It's the only way in which one can ever get anywhere near explaining her. After several months of questioning and delay, the Dauphin gave Joan armour, a banner, and permission to march to Orléans on the Revoloire with the army in order to relieve the English siege. On April the 29th, 1429, Joan entered the city by a gap in the overstretched English lines. By her presence, she galvanized the defending forces into making a series of successful attacks, vividly depicted in the Armagnac Chronicles. The English forts fell, and the English withdrew on May the 8th. All Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day.